I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we discuss RBS's plans to scale back into investment bank, which have come around just before what looks to be the most contentious bonus round since the financial crisis. Some people have said to us that if he does decide to take it, his future at the bank would be very difficult. We also take a look at the latest Basel committee recommendations about liquidity buffers. At the end of November, at a press conference, Sir Mervyn King, the the Bank of England, actually heads this Basel committee as well, said, by the way, we've been letting banks dip in, which was news to many people who were not at those banks. And all eyes are on Unicredit, Italy's struggling bank, as it prepares to raise $7.5 billion of fresh capital. I think this sets a really alarming precedent for those banks that do need to raise a lot of capital and we're hoping to do so through rights issues. Joining me this week is the FT's retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff and chief regulation correspondent Brooke Masters. First, RBS, uh, where there's a lot going on, Charlene, um, not only are we seeing the bank finalise their plans to shrink their investment bank fairly dramatically, but it's emerged today Megan Murphy's story about John Hurricane, the head of that investment bank, the Global Banking and Markets Division, probably being set to stoke anger, at least among politicians, as he takes hold of a four million award special bonus that he was granted three years ago now, but it actually comes through now. This is surely going to be pretty contentious at a time when thousands of jobs, maybe as many as 10,000, are set to be lost at the investment bank. But also the public ire over bonuses is pretty strong given the recession. Yeah, I think that's that's all very true. And I think Mr. Hurricane faces a huge dilemma here as we move into the early months of this year. This bonus was awarded back in 2009 by Stephen Hester, who started then as chief executive. And he brought John Hurricane in to head up the investment bank and try and sort out out the mess left by its disastrous acquisition of ABN AMRO. And, and he was obviously very keen to make sure they had stability in that business and they secured the services. Somebody knew what was going on because he'd been exactly. before that at ABN AMRO, right? Yes, so. exactly. So he knew the business very well. Yeah. And as part of his package, he was awarded what now seem, you know, looks to be a huge number of shares, almost 30 million RBS shares. I mean, worth more then than they are now. Yeah, which even at today's depressed prices are worth 4 million. But exactly. back when they were awarded, they were probably well, looking probably three double, times that, double right? or three times that. Yeah. yeah. So he was awarded them on over a three-year plan. There were some performance targets. We don't know what they were or how strict they were. So as far as we know, these are likely to vest in April, um, giving him a potential cash windfall of more than £4 million, which obviously is a huge sum, particularly as, uh, you know, while the investment bank may have had a successful 2009, the last couple of years have been very, very tough. And Stephen Hester is now taking the decision to shrink that by potentially more than half. So this business is, is effectively being shut down now you know that coming on top of just at the time when he takes this enormous bonus I think some people have said to us that if he does decide to take it his future at the bank would be very difficult to yeah um, that's people even within the bank at a pretty senior level that are saying that so it will be yeah it's a it's a bit of a quandary for Mr Hurricane Brooke do you think this is a kind of broader problem that we're likely to see played out I think so because part of the post 
crisis reforms were forcing people to take bonuses over a longer period of time. So there is a lot of stuff vesting right now that was awarded in 2009 and 2010, which were good years. And so at a time when more junior people are, who don't have their stuff spread out as long are getting, you know, big fat donuts. I mean, there there was a report out of the U.S. that some of Goldman's partners will be getting, you know, half as much as they got last year. And that there will be whole swaths of the industry where people will get nothing. And also from our research last week, it showed that Mr. Hurricane has been vesting a lot of the shares, um, you know, uh, sorry, yeah, selling is, a lot of the shares. As this isn't an isolated award, we should say that this is just yeah. the 2009 special kind of retention time thing. He's been getting the usual annual grants in different phases uh, over three year kind of yeah. vesting periods. Exactly. And, so and he clearly has an appetite to cash them in when he can. I mean, yes. he's been making, you know, a nice amount of money throughout the last couple of years selling off slices of shares whenever he gets them. So, But I think this will attract a huge amount of attention in April, whether he decides that, you know, he's had his run at the bank and he's going to take the money and, and leave, yeah. or whether he'll, he'll decide to hold them. Well, not I least mean, because the, the investment bank that he is running is going to be, uh, it's already been halved in size is likely to be halved again and probably integrated more into the other structures of the bank so we are told so that there wouldn't be a kind of GBM as it's as it's called now which uh, sounds like his job could be coming to a natural end but I think he is well respected in the bank they would be keen to hold on to him in a different role like we mentioned this morning that he could potentially take charge of restructuring RBS into the new sort of Vickers model of ring fencing the retail and commercial businesses that could be something he would do so yes. there is a sense that you know he does still want to have a future there and they would want him so I think that, so that he needs mind, to juggle this uh, minefield of the bonuses this needs to be handled carefully. quite sensitively Brooke, the second topic for today is the latest announcement from Basel. You had a busy weekend writing up what they have recommended over the weekend on liquidity buffers. Tell us exactly what's changed. Not very much by the looks of it, really. No. Uh, what's been interesting is the industry has been howling about the liquidity coverage ratio. Which... Yeah, so there are great hopes that there would be a big change. Absolutely. They kept saying it's not doable, it'll destroy lending, the economies will tank. And basically what the regulators have come out and said is, look, guys, we have agreed to look at what you can count in your emergency pot of liquidity. And we have agreed to look a bit at how we calculate how much you have to have. But don't dream that this thing is going away. So just to be clear, a liquidity buffer is the amount we should explain to all our listeners that aren't absolutely sure. This is the amount of readily available cash or near cash resources that banks have to support their activity in short term in case there's problems. Exactly. It's basically, there's a formula that says, let's assume that the market completely shuts down. How much cash and easy to sell stuff do you need for to get you through a 30-day crisis? And right now, the Basel definition says the only things you can count in that emergency slush fund are cash, government bonds, and very top-rated corporate bonds. Now, the banks have been lobbying. One of the things they've been lobbying for is for a wider definition of what can go into that, isn't it? Particularly on covered bonds, for example. They would covered like bonds, those. equities. There's some people high pushing for gold. High rated corporate bonds. Yeah. High rated corporates are already in. Right. It's more, as are some coveds. Yeah. But the U.S. banks are really hot to have securitizations included. Right. The regulators basically said, we are going to look and we will give you an answer by the end of this year. But don't get your hopes up that it's going to be an enormous change. So there might be some concessions on there. The other area that there seems to have been a bit of movement on is this idea of potentially eating into these buffers in times of trouble. The regulators were surprised that the banks didn't already know this. But to the industry, this is a big deal. Basically, capital rules, there's a minimum capital requirement. If you breach it, you're in trouble. The government's coming to take you over. Yeah. What they're saying is liquidity is different. This is a pot that you can dip into if you have trouble 
with short-term market funding, as long as you have a plan for getting yourself back out. One of the things they'll do is explain in the next year exactly what you, how much you can dip in. Presumably, you can't spend all of it with no plan for recovery. But if you go a little bit into it and have a plan for getting back out again. Isn't this what we've seen in the UK? I mean, they've already got pretty strict liquidity buffer rules here. Didn't the FSA talk about being able to eat into these buffers recently? Yes. Actually, at the end of November, at a press conference, Sir Mervyn King, the Bank of England, actually heads this Basel committee as well, said, by the way, we've been letting banks dip in, which was news to many people who were not at those banks. But it, I think the idea is, it's a little bit, there's a famous metaphor of the taxi at the station rule, which is that all train station, you know, train station has a rule saying there must always be a taxi at the station. It's pointless to have a taxi at the station if it can't then take a passenger. And they, they view it quite as that sort of a similar thing, is that you have this emergency slush fund so you can use it as long as you don't, you know, use it for ordinary things. We should make the point that the new Basel rules don't apply till 2015 anyway, so that the fact that we're in the middle of a crisis is kind of irrelevant at the moment. I suspect everyone's hoping that the new rules, when they start, will be um, out of this crisis and we're talking about any future crises, but fingers crossed on that. Final topic for today, and something that's really preoccupying a lot of bankers in Europe, is the rights issue or attempt to raise a rights issue. In Italy, Unicredit, the biggest bank there by assets, is in the middle of trying to raise 7.5 billion euros. The next week or so is crucial to their attempt to get this deal done. The market doesn't seem to have much confidence. We've seen the share price absolutely slump dramatically over the past five or six days since they announced the terms of that deal. It was deeply discounted, 43% discount to the theoretical X rights price. But as I say, the share price has slumped dramatically. It's down to very uh, only a very small amount above the actual price at which those rights are being offered, 194 euros. Today, we are at the point where the actual amount that they're trying to raise, 7.5 billion euros, is almost exactly the same as the now very much slumped market capitalization. Brooke, what do you think this means for Unicredit? The deal is underwritten, so it should mean that it's academic whether Unicredit shareholders end up with the shares, their underwriters are left with them. But does it have a kind of significance for the bank beyond this? Well, it's real shades of 2008-9 when HBOS and Bradford and Bingley tried to do rights issues. And HBOS did ultimately pull off its rights issue because it was underwritten. But Bradford and Bingley, in the end, they had to change the terms in order to push it through. In both cases, those banks no longer exist. So it's not a good omen for Unicredit. It's not a great omen. I, I think Unicredit's defenders would probably argue, with some justification, that Unicredit, for all its problems, certainly in terms of raising extra capital, does have a probably a more healthy balance sheet than did HBOS, for example, back in 2008. And it can fix its problems as long as it's got the required regulatory capital. But what about beyond Unicredit itself? That's surely something that really worries bankers across Europe, especially given that there's so many banks across the continent that need to raise capital in some form over the next six months to meet the um, European Banking Authority's requirements. 115 billion in total was identified as a shortfall a few, only a month ago. Yeah, I think this sets a really alarming precedent for those banks that do need to raise a lot of capital and were hoping to do so through rights issues. Like Deutsche Bank springs to mind as the most sort of widely rumoured uh, yeah, European bank. Yeah, and they're desperately looking... denying those rumours, I suppose. They're yeah. wanting to uh, scotch all thought that they yeah. might follow Unicredit into a troubled issue. Yeah, I mean, I think we had Stephen Hester, the chief executive of RBS, saying towards the end of 
last year that you know anyone would be dumb to put money into European banks, and I think yes. investors seem to be sharing that sentiment in the early weeks of this year. I mean, like you said, I mean the shares of Unicredit have just fallen off a cliff. I think people are saying, you know, this shows how investors are just really spooked. They don't want to increase their share in these banks right now, um, and banks who do have to raise significant amounts of capital may have to look to other means to do so and really shouldn't be relying on rights issues. Well, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that Unicredit had the second biggest gap of about $8 billion identified by the EBA in that tally of capital gaps that had to be closed. Santander, Spain's biggest bank, had the biggest gap of $15 billion. But I think you were saying just before we came on air that they've announced that they've actually bridged that gap already. They have. They without have, raising any Without raising any money. fresh capital. Like you said, I think they, they had the most to raise, uh, 15 billion euros. And they've managed to get to that point already, so that giving them the 9% uh, quarter one equity ratio through an, a number of quite sort of niftily structured and fairly technical conversions of bonds. And they've conver- converted a big slug of retail bonds into shares. They've extracted... a substantial amount of equity from their Brazilian business and combined with various asset sales of little bits and pieces here and there around the world, they've managed to hit the target and obviously very proud of themselves today. So maybe it doesn't matter if banks can't raise rights issue money, they can get there kind of by juggling and so on. I think it's true that some banks and many of will be able to get there with the juggling. There's been a lot of talk of risk-weighted asset optimization, which means Lovely fundamentally <laughs> you fix your ratio by by shrinking the bottom, by basically redefining the bottom. Right. Santander is also a bit of a special case in that the rules for the EBA specifically gave them some leeway on converting some of their bonds. Like The deadlines were set in a way that made it easier for Santander and some of the other Spanish and banks Spanish to meet banks, them. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's probably the fact that Santander's pulled it off probably suggests the other Spanish banks that were planning to use the same conversion mechanism are on track to do the same thing. Santander's also been able to take advantage of the fact that it has far-flung investments where other people are also investors. And under the new Basel stricter rules, that was problematic for their capital ratio. But if they could swap it, it's a real asset. It just doesn't count anymore because the rules have gotten tighter. So what they've done is they've swapped it for something else. And so similarly, banks that have far-flung investments where they are have minority stakeholders involved will often be able to do that. So if you're looking at a bank that either has some bonds to convert or has far-flung minority interests, then I think they're in pretty good shape. The others, I'm not sure that any of this is good well, news for them. As as we've said many times before, the only other route, really, once you've exhausted all those ruses and tactics, is, is to shrink. And that's why so many people are worried about a credit crunch in Europe, which I'm sure is going to be one of the themes that we're going to report on throughout 2012. Unfortunately, that's it for this week, our first edition of 2012. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Brooke for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tsang. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.